0: Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refunds. Subscription auto-renews.
1: Wait, are you gaming on a Chromebook?
0: (laughs) Yep, It's got a high-res 120 hertz display, plus this killer RGB keyboard. And I can access thousands of games anytime, anywhere. Stop
1: playing. What? Get out of here. Huh? Yeah, I want you to stop playing and get out of here so I can game on that Chromebook. Got it. Ahead,
0: break it down Discover the ultimate cloud gaming machine, a new kind of Chromebook. Hello and welcome to a very special The Great Cricketer podcast. Very special. We just, we just uh, you know, as I said uh, during the Tuesday show during the week with Steve Smith and Ned Cowan, wonderful show, wonderful mm-hmm. to be back. But, uh, you know, this, this sort of came as a bit of a surprise for, for Pez and I, um, that we had just planned it to just be, you know, the usual 15 to half an hour interview mm-hmm. and it just kept on rolling to 53 minutes and we found it more and more interesting as the chat went along. So, um, uh, you know, we sort of start the interview Pez by talking about his relationship with the great cricket and him growing up and, you know, his brothers and all that sort of stuff. And then it sort of gets into his playing career. And then, uh, yeah, as I said, as, as the interview goes on more and more, it becomes more and more interesting because of his views and his perception of um, particularly identifying talent and what great cricket what, mm. what Greg Ritt's place is in the, uh, you know, diaspora of, mm. uh, you know, cricket generally. So mm. it's a surprise goes for, you know, the chat goes for 53 minutes, as we keep on saying, but um, it's really, really fascinating. And it was, um I don't know, it's it surprised me, the chat. Mm. It
2: was, it was one of those things we, we looked at each other through the chat and I think we, you know, by, by osmosis sort of realised, oh, this is turning into something a little bit bigger than mm. the kinds of, chats we have for our like for our tuesday podcast for example it goes for around 20 or so minutes so mm. he, he has things that he wants to say great yeah. chapel things that he and he, he is going around the media saying it i'm not sure whether it's about kind of um readjusting his legacy or whatnot but it's whatever your views or wherever you come down on his kind of fundamentalism on youth and things like that mm-hmm. it's very compelling and very interesting i mean nobody has had a more involved um place or uh in Australian cricket, both as a um a player, a coach, a selector, an administrator, not just Australian cricket, global cricket too. His bit talking about India is super fascinating and mm-hmm. all this came about because he made a few comments, you know, during a shield match on KO or mm-hmm. whatnot about youth. And I just thought to text him and go, oh, listen, do you want to have a chat on our show about it. And I thought it would be quite provocative because we're called the great cricketer. I didn't mm. expect him to know us or anything. And he mm. said he was really keen. And he came into this chat ready with, mm. you know, well, you, you know it, he says, um, you know, fire whatever bullets you want or words to that effect. So uh, with that in mind, hope you enjoy this chat with, you know, an ornament to the game. And, uh, um,
0: you know, it's 53 minutes. Do what you got to do. Uh, and i uh, love to know what you think. Let us know what you think. And, of course, this show would not be possible without our very dear... Dear, dear friends, our dearest friends, Budgie Smuggler, where you can get free shipping, use the code CHAMP at checkout. That's budgie Christmas right around the corner. All those things, and don't forget as well. Who was Pez? Well, get a few today, did you? <laughs> Ponting
2: wines. Ponting they're, wines. They're bringing you all of our interviews yeah. uh, this summer, and uh, you know, through their dedicated craftsmanship, you too could experience you know, the uh, the wonderful. Uh, <laughs> Reds, whites. The richness, uh, the boldness. You know, yeah. You, you the know, tannins. With, with, with wines like, you know, Mobro Boy and, you know, the Pinnacle. Yeah. And uh, 366, which is their icon wine. It's
0: f- good names. Um, no, no,
2: we're going to get Ricky to say get a few today, did you? Yeah. We're going to be- clink glasses. But um, <laughs> Ponting Wines bring you this interview as well.
0: Greg Chapel through your ears right now. Enjoy.
2: All right. Here we are. He goes, and uh, listeners of a particular generation will be especially thrilled that we've got this person on. I just want to say from the outset, I believe the brotherhood that this man is part of, Alpha's the Wars. Oh, really? In relative terms, I yeah, do. Okay. Yeah. yeah, okay. Uh, and and here are some numbers to back that up. Please. Eighty-seven Test matches, seven thousand one hundred and ten runs there. higher score of two hundred and forty-seven not out. An average of fifty-three point eight six. Thirty-one fifties, twenty-four tons. That's before you even get into the super tests. Before very I mean. Average 69. Uh, first class cricket, 321 matches. 24,535 runs. Again, a higher score of 247 not out. An average of 52.2, so average higher in test cricket, Yeah, if you will, just stepping up. Yep. 111 50s, 7400s. 376 catches. Okay. 291 first class wickets. Two and a best of 7 for 40 there. Cheers. Yep. Uh, he was the outstanding batsman of his generation, one of the most influential voices in Australian cricket this century. I'm, of course, talking about Greg Chappell. Greg, welcome to The Great Cricketer.
3: Thanks, Sam. Nice to be here.
2: Have you ever heard all of your stats read out in one <laughs> go like that? Like, how does it make you feel to hear those numbers?
3: Uh, yeah, I, I probably have at some point. Um, it's funny, you know, it, it feels like someone else did it? Um, it's such a long time ago, for one thing, but it, it just—it feels a bit unreal in in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I never played the game for that reason. You played the game because you loved it. You played the game because you loved the challenges that it presented from an individual point of view, but also from a group point of view. You know that—you um, know—trying to achieve a goal together, um, the camaraderie that you build up over years, particularly with, you know, guys that were around for a, for a long time. You know, you talked about World Series cricket. That was a special sort of segment of, of that life. But it, it does seem like another life.
1: Mm.
2: Uh, Greg, you've been involved in cricket at all levels. I mean, I don't know if there's anybody around who has just uh, traversed every part of cricket in this country, even around the world. You're an international player, international captain, international selector, international coach. You stewarded the National Centre of Excellence uh, before serving as National Talent Manager in 2010. You've seen it all. Um, So it begs the question, how important is second grade and what's your relationship to grade cricket? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Look,
3: grade cricket is very important. That's where we all start, obviously. And I have very fond memories of the Glenelg Cricket Club where we grew up. Um, We grew up at North Glenelg, which was um, probably, I don't know, three or four Ks from the Glenelg Oval. And we were on the other side of um, the the tracks, if, if you like. I mean, Glenelg Oval was on the Brighton side of of Glenelg and we were over at North Glenelg, which was sort of an add-on suburb around the time that I was born, basically. So we were initial residents of of that area and it was a particularly um, close-knit group because all of the families arrived pretty much at the same time. So a lot of the activity that um, we were involved in, summer and, and winter, revolved in that part of the suburb and then as we progressed up the the levels not only of cricket but baseball the Glenelg Baseball Club was resident at Glenelg Oval for many years so our social life our sporting life our mates all sort of you know the 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 Glenelg Cricket Club Glenelg Oval was a social centre of the day because you know, most families didn't have two cars so you walked or rode a bike or whatever you did to to get there or our father played for the Glenelg district cricket club so when he was still playing the whole family went so everybody every player's whole family went so all the kids of those players were at the ground so it was a very social and a very big part of our lives and um, you know so therefore it has a lot of very happy memories from from those days and then as we graduated, um, you know, into schoolboy cricket, you know, we represented the Glenelg District Cricket Club in the under sixteen competition, as it was in in those days. It then later became an under seventeen competition. But the memories, the friendships, every bit of it was um, generated through that environment, and that cricket club was a very important part of it. So I didn't play second grade. Um, I was lucky enough. Well, actually, that's a lie. I did play second grade because Prince Alfred College, the school at which, uh, which we all attended, uh, Prince Alfred College, St. Peter's College and Adelaide Boys High School all played, their first 11s played in the men's B-grade competition. So while we were at school, we played second grade. So that was very important because that was the first level at which I played against adults from a, from the age of 14.
0: So uh, Glenelg, obviously, for our overseas list, is one of the most famous uh, South Australian uh, institutions, not just cricket clubs, uh, as as Greg says there. But um, I mean, so do you remember your first game of Greg I mean, obviously, debuting in first grade is just amazing, <laughs> just straight away. No, no idea of second grade. Oh, I played a bit of second grade after school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, do you remember your first game of first grade? And how old were you when you debuted in first grade?
3: Well, I'll go back a step, if you don't mind. I can Please. remember vividly my second, my first game of second grade. Hmm. I was 14 years of age. I'd just been uh, elevated to the first 11 at Prince Alfred College. And I'd been playing in the under 15 in short, um, (laughs) as you do. (laughs) For some reason or other, our father wouldn't let me wear long trousers for my first game of first 11 cricket, which was second grade. So I've gone out to bat in my first second grade (laughs) game against West, West Torrens in short. Yeah, well, you may well laugh. Every other bastard did. Um, I wasn't laughing. I was the only one in in the game wearing shorts. So I was a short ass as well. You know, at that stage, I would have been, you know, five foot four if I was lucky. Um, So um, I stand out in the crowd, obviously. I walk out to bat. I can remember... um, uh, Kingsley Wellington was the captain of the West Torrens team. Great name. Kingsley was captain of the South Australian baseball team at that stage and probably even the coach. He had played baseball and cricket against my father and my elder brother. So he knew me and so I I was a target. I had a target on the back from the minute I walked out because he'd clashed with both my father and my brother on the sporting field and he'd obviously lost those battles. So he was yes. going to win this one. Yes. Yeah. And he made me a target from the minute I walked out the bat, and I was very nervous. Now those shorts could easily have been filled up at some point <laughs> <laughs> because the in the era there was a lot of, there were a lot of chuckers around at the time, mm. and so Donald Bradman was trying to rid the game of, of chuckers. Uh, that was about the time of the Ian Meckiff incident and, and so on in, in Test Cricket. But yeah. there was a lot going on in great cricket in Adelaide because every club had a one or two blokes who threw the ball. Wow, that's awesome. And so Sir so Donald was trying to clean that out. They were banned from playing first grade. Guess what? They were allowed to play second grade. <laughs> so I've got a, a fella called Parry and another fella called Smith running in from each end. They may as well have not run up. They both (laughs) played baseball for the West Orms Baseball Club, and I think they'd mixed up the season. (laughs) It was scary because even though Ian had thrown balls at me in the backyard, he hadn't thrown them as hard as this. So I was ready to fill the the shorts when Kingsley Wellington started to pick on me, and he did me the biggest favour of all time because I forgot about the blokes who were running in and throwing them at my head. And thought, well, if I've annoyed you that much walking out here in my shorts, if I can stick around for a while, Perfect. maybe that'll give you the willies even more. So yeah. that yeah. was a memorable occasion. I, I don't remember. I think I got around about twenty,
1: uh-huh.
3: yeah. Um, yeah, sure. and oh. they were the hardest run runs outside of the backyard. Mm-hmm. Well, no wonder you so were in second grade
2: later.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh, <laughs> now, I hope we come to that topic before we finish. But anyway. <laughs> Um, so then my, I left school. The next, the, the you know, sort of early December, I left school. The next weekend, I played my first game for in the A grade side, first grade for Glenelg against Port Adelaide. And the opening bowling attack for Port Adelaide was Eric Freeman and Neil Hawke, who a few months earlier had opened the bowling for Australia. So, again, if I'd been wearing shorts, they would have been in danger again. But luckily, I was wearing long trousers on this occasion. And that was, a, again, a huge moment in, in my life, um, representing the, the cricket club at first grade for the first time, but batting against two test bowlers. And that that was the, the thing of the era, because we only had one format of test cricket. Not only shield cricketers, but test cricketers played... Quite a bit of first grade. You know, they might play four or five, six games of first grade um, during a season. The Sheffield Shield players might play, you know, half the half the um, first grade uh, calendar. So the next generation of young cricketers, of whom I was one at the time, got challenged by first class cricketers and Test cricketers at that level, which was in a very important part of growing up in, in the game at the time.
2: Greg, um, oh, there's so much to talk about over, over over your entire career. If I could skip forward a lot there to um, just the great success of your test career, you mentioned Sir Donald there before. I, I mean, you were born in the same month Bradman played his last test. Uh, you were the first to break his test runs record. Uh, younger people might recall the consternation when Mark Taylor nearly overtook Bradman's highest score in Ninety-eight, and, and this was nearly twenty years earlier when you did that. I mean, can you tell us what you know? What was the mood around the country when you surpassed Bradman? Um, did he congratulate you, and was Ian pretty happy?
3: Um, so Donald did congratulate me. Uh, um, telegram in the in the day, um, very generous um, comments that he he made about uh, about my cricket. But yeah, you know, I, I know that I didn't consider it breaking any of his records. It was just a longevity thing. I played enough matches to to make that many runs. But, you know, the the record doesn't bear comparison. So I don't think anyone took it that seriously in the sense that it was a milestone and only a milestone. Well, fair enough. Um, and, and from my point of view, I mean, it wasn't that big a deal. You know, it was nice having got that far, you know, I'd made the announcement at the start of my, that what was my last Test match that that was my last Test match, and at that stage I think I was sixty odd runs short of Sir Donald's target of six thousand nine hundred ninety six. Um, and from my point of view, one of the reasons that I made the announcement at the start of the Test match, I didn't want to get within five runs of Sir Donald's mark and think that I should play another Test match next year. I that it was irrelevant other than from the point of view that it was a milestone, you know, to be the first Australian batsman to make 7,000 test runs was an interesting footnote, but that's all it was.
2: Just another one from your playing career as well, Greg, you you said your first tour of the Caribbean in 1973 was the best atmosphere you played in. Again, a lot of listeners here, that would have been before their time. Uh, You talked about... What's your point? The love of... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you talked about the love of the game there, the lightness of attitude, the joy of the game. Can you can you paint a picture for the listeners um, of getting a beer or getting on the circuit in mm-hmm. the Caribbean in 1973?
3: Yeah, it was a fabulous time. You know, I'd grown up listening to cricket. There wasn't a lot of television around for, until I was a teenager. So cricket, to me, had come over the airwaves and I'd listened to cricket as a youngster in bed, from England and from the Caribbean and, you know, two-way radio. So that'll be a a real stretch for a lot of your listeners if they're that young. Um, (laughs) So the sound, you know, they were literally sound waves and the voices would sort of disappear momentarily on the sound waves. So the, the games had a very distinct sound to them and each ground had a distinct sound. And, you know, the cricket from the Caribbean sounded different from the cricket in England, where everybody was very polite in Mm. England and, you know, polite applause. The crowds in the West Indies were much noisier, a lot of music and, you know, a lot of carnival sort of atmosphere. Mm. So I was really looking forward to going to the, the Caribbean. I'd looked forward to going to England the year before because that's what I'd grown up dreaming about. But, you know, and having, you know, being a teenager when... Frank, Sir Frank Worrell brought the West Indies to Australia in 1661 yes. and that was such a great series and the, the style of West Indian cricket, Gary Sobers, Rowan Canai, Roland Butcher, you know, these batsmen just captured, captured my imagination when I saw them as a teenager. So I was excited about going to the Caribbean. We went to Jamaica first, Kingston, Jamaica and Kingston was in the throes of Gun laws and you know arrests, people put in jail without any trials. There was a lot of unrest, so we were told to be careful. Don't go out at night. If you go out at all, go out in groups. So that put a bit of an edge to, the, to our first stop. And what happened, you know, we would go to an island like Jamaica first up. You would play a game against Jamaica and then the next week you'd play the test match and move on. So it was the same sort of pattern through the islands. You'd play against the, the first-class team, then you'd play the test match. So we went to Sabina Park and we, we played the game against Jamaica. It was a nice atmosphere, but a, you know, a good crowd, but nothing spectacular. A nice ground, um, probably getting towards the end of it. it its tether, big um, mud walls all the way around the ground. Um, barbed wire on, on posts at the top of these um, uh, walls that we didn't quite understand. We played against Jamaica who had a fast bowler called Yuton Dow, D-O-W-E. And Yuton was reputed to be the the fastest bowler in the world. And he didn't play in the, the game for Jamaica. The, you know, everywhere we went in Jamaica in that sort of 10 days, or in fact, we were there a bit longer because we played Another game against the, the President's Eleven. So we were there for three weeks. And every function we went to for three weeks, we heard about Newton Dow. And we were you know, looking forward to seeing him, but not in a rush to see him. <laughs> So when he got left out of the Jamaican team for the, the game the week before the test match, I don't know, we must have had 16 players on tour. 15 of us were delirious. Keith Stackpole was the angriest man I've ever seen. He genuinely loved fast bowling, and he was disappointed that he wasn't going to see this new young quick. So the the story was supposedly that he was injured, but what we were hearing was they didn't want us to see him before the test match. So the first morning of the test match at Jamaica, there's a lot of excitement. You know, we get on the bus from the hotel, and we're all looking forward to We arrive at the ground at... 9 o'clock in the morning, I think the test match starting at 11 o'clock. We're arriving just before 9 o'clock. The ground is full to overflowing. There are people lined up down the street. Now, I don't know how many the, the ground could contain, but it was overfull when we arrived at 9 o'clock in the morning. And it ha- because they played soccer there in the off-season, there were four light pylons that you know were used for the, for the soccer matches. And you guys probably don't know what a Meccano set is, but these light towers were metal sort of towers that looked like a four Meccano set. And on those light towers, there would have been a couple of hundred people sort of all the way up these light towers that are maybe a 100 feet in the air. So this is long before the, the game is due to start. So we arrive and we start warming up and each time players walked out onto the ground, the crowd would erupt into excitement, music was playing, everyone was drinking rum, These, the blokes up on the light towers had their flagon of the rum and they were ready for the day and they weren't coming down to go to the bathroom so the flagon flag became very useful later in the day while they were up the, the light tower, anyway Ian has won the toss and the, the toss brought More excitement than I'd ever seen at the cricket ground before as the two captains walked out to toss. Rowan Cani and and Ian Chappell, the captains, Ian's won the toss and has elected to bat. So stackys I've never seen a more excited man. He's opening the batting and Newton Dow's going to open the bowling and he can't wait to get there. The rest of us weren't quite so confident. (laughs) Anyway, out they go to bat. And the noise by this stage, which has been... Growing from 9 o'clock till 11 o'clock it's just been getting louder by the minute to the to the point where Yuten Dow measured out his run and they're all clapping and making a, a huge racket. And as Yuten Dow turns to run in for the first time, absolute silence. I've never experienced it anywhere before or since. As soon as he started his run up, the crowd went silent. Uton Dow bowled a bouncer, which Stacky hooked for four, and the crowd erupted and continued at that level for the rest of the day. It was unbelievable. And as I say, I've never experienced anything like it before. Even on the other islands, it wasn't quite like that. But at the end of, I think, six overs, Uton Dow had none for 48. So Stacky had absolutely Mm. smashed him because Uton was quick. He did like bowling short, and that's exactly where Saki enjoyed it. Mm. So, Rowan, can I have taken Newton Dow off mm. and didn't bring him back until the second new ball late in the first day when, as he handed the ball to Uton Dow, some wag up on one of these light hours has yelled out, Can I? Haven't you heard the 11th? commandment, thou shalt not bowl, <laughs> and that, yeah, that was the sort of level of humour that went on, the, the crowds were terrific, the cricket was terrific, it was played in, a, in great spirit,
1: yeah.
3: some you know very different conditions around the island, all the pitches were you know a little bit different, most of them hard except in Trinidad where it spun a lot, mm. um, that was one of the more enjoyable tours and one of the more enjoyable test series that I played in. Mm the beach was only ever about 100 meters away and there mm. was always a, uh, there was always a dance party going on somewhere so you enjoyed the cricket and you enjoyed life off the field the circuit was very busy mm.
0: <laughs> i'm sure it was i'm sure it was you speak there Greg, about you know some of the, the great atmosphere is obviously quite um we well, obviously seeing some of that as well, you know, at sort of Park 25 and Karen Rolton Oval during the Shield as well. similar sort of <laughs> atmosphere is going at the moment. But <laughs> I, I, I'd imagine you uh, more so than anyone maybe in Australian cricket would have a great sense of the structures in place in Indian cricket with your time obviously coaching the national team there. I mean, you said once that India, if India ever got their act together that no team would ever beat them again. Um, I, I want to know, you know, how strong is the Ranji Trophy in relation to the Sheffield Shield? And I, I note that, like, for instance, their domestic competition, their domestic you know, T20 competition is obviously the IPL, which they play at the end of the season, whereas in Australia we're smacking it right back in the middle of the season. So the Shield players mm-hmm. are playing sort of two two seasons strung together, which I know the players don't really love, but it is what it is, I suppose. So, you know, yeah. Ran- Ranji Trophy, I think it's 36 teams over four tiers, I think I'm right in saying. I mean, how, how strong is the Ranji Trophy in comparison to the Sheffield Shield? Um, it's
3: probably somewhere between, you know, wherever the best, first grade competition is in Australia and first class cricket in Australia mm. it's competitive because when you've got a billion people playing cricket and only 11 can play for India mm. it's dog eat dog you know I can't believe you know the the, the the journey that the 11 blokes go on that finish up playing for India is unbelievable
1: mm.
3: and how any one of them gets there is is incredible now it's more so these days than ever before because basically the Indian team was picked out of Mumbai, Chennai, Bangalore, Delhi. That was pretty much it for much of the first, you know, fifty years of, yeah. of Indian cricket. In fact, you know, up until um, so probably sixty years early two thousands, that was pretty much it. And I think yeah, you know, it was during my time there we started picking kids out of some of the lesser metros, as they call them in India. And I mean, some of those less than metros have got 5 million people in them. But, um, you know, Ranchi, where, where Dhoni came from, I mean, no one had ever been heard of from Ranchi before. Um, mm. You know, some of the places that, um, you know, guys like Rainer came from and, and others, you know, they had never had test cricketers before. Mm. So you can imagine, you know, they were playing cricket but never getting any, any recognition. And so if you didn't play in the right city, you didn't play at the right club, you didn't have the right coach, it was very hard to play for India. Mm. That's very different these days. You know, they're coming from all over the country. The advantage they have over Australia is that they've still got kids playing on the streets and in parks, in you know, tenement halls and wherever they can find somewhere to play cricket. You know, Dhoni has never heard of a cricket coach pretty much before he got to the Indian cricket team. He grew up playing cricket with his mates at school. In fact, he wasn't really a cricketer. He was a soccer player who just played cricket because his mates were playing cricket and he happened to be good at it. You now, when I first saw Dhoni, I, you know, he'd already played one international one-day game for India before I, I saw him, but the first time I saw him back in a in a practice match that we had early in, in my time there, I'd never seen a bloke hit balls into parts of the ground that he hit the because he had developed a game all of his own. And I think that's the advantage that India has over the structures of most of the, well, certainly the, the established cricket countries. Um, you know, I think we overcoach mm. India undercoaches, but I would I would always prefer undercoaching to overcoaching. Mm. And, you know, India still has that advantage. Forget about being the best team in the world. If India got their act together, they could have the best five teams in the world.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. There is so much good cricket. You know, after I finished with the Indian team, I worked for 18 months in, uh, for Rajasthan Cricket. Um, Ian Fraser and I set up their academy and ran their academy for, for 18 months. They've got, I think, 20-odd regions in Rajasthan, and we got them to send the best 20 young cricketers from each region one at a time one region at a time, down to Jaipur, where the head of Ryderstone Cricket was and the main training centre. And we would sift through those guys and pick the best sort of half a dozen out of each region. By the end of it, we hadn't got through the whole 20 regions by the end of it. But we, we gave them 50 young cricketers that I would say half of them... Would have gone. Would have been good enough to go on and play Sheffield Shield cricket. Ninety nine percent of them have never played for Rajasthan. Oh, oh. So that'll give you an idea of the depth of, of yeah, quality yeah. of cricket. So, yeah. Ranji cricket is very competitive. Right. Yeah, you know, they've got an. They've got an under. You know, from a, from sixteen years of age, basically, there's a junior Ranji competition where these kids are playing full time cricket. So when we get to the under nineteen level, mm. you know, with an Australian under nineteen team at an uh, under nineteen World Cup, mm. our kids have probably played a hundred games of cricket. These Indian kids have played five thousand games of cricket. Mm. So their cricket craft is so far in a, yeah. you know in advance of ours. Yeah. We we make up the gap from there on. I think our structures are better from that point onwards, mm. but. Yeah, I remember talking to one of the Indian kids in at the 2012 World Cup. He, he went on and played, I think he played three under-19 World Cups and he was never older than 17. Jesus. But he, I said to him, what about school? He said, I don't go to school. He said, I get one crack at cricket. Mm. If I miss out, that's it. I can go back to school anytime. Mm. Mm.
1: So
3: uh, it's it, it's a totally different environment. Yeah.
2: Like putting a bat in my two and a half year old son's hands right now. He's already he's
3: already behind. Uh, yeah, well, he, he is behind. <laughs> well, no, I mean, yeah. you know, apart from the obvious handicaps that he's got, but you know, he's he's certainly behind in relation to the kids that grow up in the uh, in the subcontinent. He could have he, he could he could have picked a more talented father,
2: but
1: anyway,
3: that's that's his problem.
1: <laughs> oh, man. <laughs>
2: um, you're obviously, you're obviously. Um, <laughs> I just love experiencing, you know, just yeah. that little insight. Yeah, I feel like I played uh, just cricket. Exactly. Yeah. Uh you're obviously a deep, deep thinker about the uh, the way we bring cricketers through. Greg, and I know you said earlier you, you're looking forward to getting to this question. Um, just on the youth focus, I mean, I'm sure you've heard it all before on on criticism of the Futures League and the way it disincentivised older players. Um, some, you know, some even wondered if there'd be an age limit on the baggy green cap. Um, <laughs> look. Rather than mind that further, because I think it, it's been mined pretty hard. You know, I, I want to ask, you know, was was there anything from your playing career that informed that focus on youth? I mean, we all know what it's like to encounter the thirty-five-year-old who bowls stump to stump with a <laughs> ring field, hogging twenty-five overs a game, muscling balls <laughs> over the top on slow wickets. You know, for twenty overs. Um, I, I know you played a bunch of county cricket where there was plenty old, plenty of old blokes that, that uh, hang out. Um, I guess I want to know, you know, which older player, like, just triggered your zealous belief in youth? or Was it the experience uh, when you're wearing shorts with Mr Wellington? Um, You know, which was the player that, you know, that that created the straw that broke the camel's back?
3: No one player. All of it informed, um, you know, my my belief. And and it's not a a focus on youth. It's a focus on talent. You know, you've got to recognise talent. And the sooner you recognise talent, the the better the chance is that that talent will be realised. I mean, I needed, at 14 years of age, I needed Kingsley Wellington in my ear and I needed Barry and Smith whistling the ball around my head. Mm. You know, I didn't need, I, you know, I'd already shown at underage, at the various underage levels that I could cope with each level and each, at the right time, I got elevated to the next level. The worst thing you can do to to talent is to hold it at a level at which it's already competent for too long and there's a very good there's a very good example in our own family Ian and I went through P- Prince Alfred College when the first eleven played in the men's B grade competition by the time I finished school the school had gone back to the students grade you know gps competition so trevor played all of his school cricket at prince alfred college in you know playing against his age group and he dominated, more so than Ian and I had dominated the school because we were playing against men. So it was a, a tougher competition. I have no doubt that had Trevor had the benefit that we had, that you know, things may have been better for him and you know he would have developed even better as a as a player. You know, Graham Hick is another example who went from Zimbabwe to England. To pursue cricket as a as a profession and a career, and absolutely blitz county cricket. He was ready to play Test cricket by the time he was 20, 21 years of age, but he didn't qualify by residence. You had to do seven years at that stage until he was twenty six. He had adapted to county cricket. He'd found a way to avoid, you know, and this is not in an unkind way, mm. but you know he was smart enough that the one genuinely good or quick bowler in the opposition, you know, he could find a way to handle that and get down the other end and make mincemeat of the rest of the bowlers. 26, by the time he got to play test cricket, at the test level, it's very hard to hide at the other end. Mm. And he had missed the challenges that he needed to take his batting to the next level. I have no doubt that had he played test cricket at 21, his test record would have been very different. Much better than it was, and it's not a bad record, but his, he could have been just as good at the highest level that he was at county level. Mm. You know, you mentioned that I played two years of, of county cricket. I looked around that dressing room at blokes who weren't trying to get better. They'd been in the system for 10 years, they liked the life of a professional cricketer, albeit it wasn't hugely well paid at the time but it was better than the alternative because most of them would have been storming in a warehouse somewhere you know their their biggest ambition was to be a groundsman at a school or a cricket coach at a school they they weren't particularly ambitious people and they weren't trying to get better as cricketers they were trying to hang on they just wanted one more contract mm-hmm. And there I am as a 19-year-old sitting in the dressing room wondering why these blokes didn't care whether we won or lost. Mm -hmm. They weren't interested. Mm -hmm. They were just hanging in there to get one more contract. Mm -hmm. So I didn't realise it at the time, but that was a lesson. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when professional cricket came into Australia, I argued with whoever wanted to, to discuss it, that whatever we do, don't import county cricket. We have to have a system that still encourages performance and encourages people to keep trying to get better. Sadly, we didn't follow that system. We followed pretty much, you know, guaranteed contracts. You get paid whether you perform or not. Obviously if you're not performing eventually you'll drop off the, the contract. But that's the challenge and what the biggest difference between Developing cricketers in Australia today than when I grew up was the story I told you about my first first grade game for Glenelg against Eric Freeman and Neil Hawke, who weren't the best opening attack that Australia ever had. But I tell you what, try telling a 17-year-old that they weren't any good. Mm. They were quick, you know, they bowled well, and they had the presence of having worn that baggy green cap. So I, I already admired them. Mm. That's not happening today. And, and, you know, I'll bore you a bit longer if you'll allow me, but 2008, I reckon, we did a review of Australian cricket. There were five players under 25 on state contracts. Now, if that mm. didn't scare people, it should have, mm. because that was our future. Mm. And the the, the, the only advantage that England had over Australia with their county system was that they had at least 18 teams. So if they only had two or three players in each team, they still had 36 players to choose from. We had six teams, and if we only had two or three players that were future potential test cricketers, we had a problem. And the decision to change the format was taken by about 30 people, including the board of Cricket Australia. I'm not quite sure why I keep getting the blame for it, but I'm happy to wear it because I believe very strongly to this day and for as long as I breathe that we made the right decision to encourage states to contract younger players for the future benefit of Australian cricket, not for a handful of journeyman cricketers. Mm -hmm.
2: Great. Uh, and it's a, it's a staunch defence. I think people will be listening to that very intently. Uh, you know, what, j- just as a follow-up to that, um, what is the place of the journeyman cricketer then Because or, or the experienced cricketer? Um, when, when is it right for them to be um, playing and, and maybe not quite hanging on? And what do you say to those who may suggest that the journeyman or experienced cricketer has much to teach? Uh, the young player coming through and without that experienced cricketer, the young player may not develop the way that they need to?
1: Well, the
3: the interesting thing is, I'll answer that question in a roundabout way, you know, club cricket has never produced ready-made first-class cricketers. First-class cricket has never produced ready-made test cricketers the value of each level is to for the individuals to identify themselves as somebody who has a chance to play at the next level, whether that be a fifth-grade cricketer, cricketer or a second-grade cricketer or a first-grade cricketer. When I first went down to the Glenelg Cricket Club as a, as a youngster, the first week I went there, they put me in the fifth-grade net. And I batted, you know, as a kid, batting against men mm. um, and some older lads so they put me in the nets against the, the fifth grade cricketer. The next week I came back to training, they put me in the fourth grade net. And so on. And I went up, you know, they they would have a look at you and yeah, he's coping all right, so we'll try him against the fourth grade bowlers. Yeah, he's doing okay. Yet against the third grade bowlers and that might be where you stay for a few weeks. But there was an identify, you know a talent identification process going on then even though it wasn't recognised as such but the, the older past players that were around the club helping out they were just keeping an eye on the young blokes and this kid looks like he can play a bit so let's challenge him a bit more so that was happening naturally in the system nobody was ever ready for first grade cricket even though I'd played second grade cricket at school my first, first grade game was a challenge it was another step up and that's what each step is for and along the way, you'll meet some journeyman cricketers and some older cricketers that are hanging around. And, in fact, that used to happen. When my father finished playing first-grade cricket, he captained the third-grade side for the next three or four years. He played as you know as a playing captain, but he batted number eight, and he hardly bowled. He was there just to help out and give the kids a bit of guidance along the way. That was really important. You don't need six of them in one team. Mm-hmm. And talent mm-hmm. is overrated. Mm-hmm. You know, experience is overrated. You know, I've seen blokes that have played for 10 years that have only had one year's experience 10 times <laughs> because they keep making <laughs> the same mistakes that they made last year and the year before that. There's great cricketers, well cricketers everywhere not, I, who can identify Well, with yeah, yeah. yeah, look, mate, you know, some blokes – love the game and they play the game and they should be encouraged to enjoy it. Yeah, the biggest mistake that we made in Australian cricket was to turn first-grade cricket into an all-day game. You know, when we we started playing, it was 1 o'clock till 6 o'clock because blokes went to work on a Saturday morning. Mm. You have guys running into the ground at 10 minutes to 1. I can remember our wicketkeeper walking out to bat, you know, sorry, walking out onto the field he had his pads and gloves on, but he hadn't done his laces up yet. He'd come from the pharmacy that morning, and he'd arrived at the ground at ten to eleven, and we were in the field, and he had that long to get ready. And you know, we played a you know three and a half hour session, and then another you know two and a half hour session, or whatever it was, um, might have been two and a half and two hour sessions with a twenty minute break for afternoon tea. You know, that that meant that you had a chance to have a career outside of cricket. And Sundays we didn't play cricket. You had time at home with the families. And all of a sudden we turned grade cricket into an all-weekend affair. Mm. And guess what? The wives didn't enjoy that very much. <laughs> you know, blokes had young families. We had young families, but we were only gone on Saturday afternoon. Mm. Mm. And, you know, the club it was only gone on Saturday afternoons. Mm. You know, you can point your finger at me as much as you like, but the changes in Australian cricket have happened just by process of time. You know, professional cricket put a barrier, put a glass ceiling, if you like, between grade cricket and first-class cricket. You know, I coached South Australia and the first-class cricketers, the question I got asked most is, do I have to play grade cricket on the weekend? They didn't want to go back and play grade cricket. Mm. And so there have been a whole range of issues. You know, all-day cricket on a Saturday, a lot of Sunday cricket meant that wives started saying maybe you can't go and play cricket all day every weekend you've got to help me with the kids and you've got to mow the lawn and you've got to do a few other things around the place mm. we got away from a lot of that because well we didn't really because we still had to mow the lawn on Sundays which was a pain in the arse. but anyway um, so you know first class cricket became not only you know red ball cricket but white ball cricket so instead of having ten weekends off a year where first-class cricketers could go back and play um, grade cricket for for a lot of the season, that stopped happening. So all of a sudden, the, the the sort of experience that you wanted to come back into grade cricket wasn't coming back. And the blokes that were were left there were your sort of third eleven cricketers, if you like, because the test cricketers never played first-class cricket. So we already had, if you you know you want to be put a fine point on it, we had a second eleven competition. What we didn't need was another layer of older players running around who weren't going to impact Australian cricket. It was taking five years for players to get from under nineteen cricket to first class cricket. So you imagine if we hadn't changed the system and Steve Smith was still running around in first-grade cricket, and David Warner was still running around in first-grade cricket. What benefit would that be for Australian cricket? Mm. We would have missed a lot of good cricketers if we hadn't forced the States to start contracting young cricketers. Mm. So you can fire as many bullets as you like, but Australian cricket has been benefited by the changes. A few individuals haven't been benefited by the changes. And to be fair, they're the, probably the loudest voices against the change. Mm.
0: I just needed someone to blame for not ever making that a third grade, Greg. So I appreciate yeah. you taking the bullets, though. Mm. But, um, but, um, no, no, that's yeah.
3: okay. I'm, uh, I, I I have trouble swimming these days. The bloody water runs straight through me. But anyway, um, <laughs> I, I'm getting over it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what i ask you, Greg, I mean, there's just, just one last one from me. You've been so generous with your time um, this morning, but... um. But you know, one one of the great questions in cricket that happens every year, basically in Australia, is who is the best since Bradman? And I want to put that question to you because you know it, it may well be yourself. You know, is it Ricky Ponting? Is it uh, is it Steve War? Alan Border? Steve Smith? Is it uh, Cameron Green? Is it Chris Green? Who, who is who is the best since
1: Bradman?
3: Yeah, it's a great question, and you, you could you could have a lot of you could drink a lot of beers having that argument mm. um, or that discussion because it's not an argument. And it's almost irrelevant. Yeah, I mean Bradman stuffed it for everyone for <laughs> yeah. forever and day. I mean, everyone who's batted since Bradman might as well have gone and played tennis. Because <laughs> there's absolutely no point to it. Yeah. So I think it's almost irrelevant who's who's the next bet. You yeah, know, all of those names you mentioned could well be in in the frame for that. But that's not important. You know, the fact of the matter is that we've had champions in every era. Mm. And that's great. And that's what Australian cricket has been predicated on. And guess what? Every one of them was picked as a young player. And Mm. every one of them, including Bradman, got dropped before they actually graduated and understood what chess cricket. I think Doug Walters is probably the only one I can think of that never got dropped, Mm. having been picked as a 19-year-old. And funnily enough, he made 100 in his first two test matches you ignore youth at your peril because that's mm. where the energy comes from mm. you know as a you know a cricket team is never a finished article there's no such thing as this is this is it because if you're not moving forward you're going backwards mm. there's no such thing as standing still because all of the opposition are going forward so you've got to keep re-energizing teams all along and that's why I'm you know speaking out loudly about Fukosky and Green at the moment. Mm. Steve Smith and David Warner, they need that sort of energy coming into the team that will encourage them to maybe go to a to another level. Mm. Plus, they're the right example of the, the sort of player we want those kids to learn from. Mm. They come in the into the into the group and see how Smith prepares, Warner prepares. Um yeah, Manus Labashain, how he prepares, and, and all the rest of the guys. I mean, that's the sort of example you want young cricketers to be learning from. Not for somebody who has peaked in first grade or in first-class cricket and you know is a, is a worthy player. You're always going to have teams that are going to be made up of those guys that perhaps aren't quite good enough or might have gone to the next level for a moment but have come back. There's always a place for them. Mm but not 11 of them. You always need five or six players that are trying to go somewhere in any team to keep it moving forward. But getting back to your question, I mean, Smith's record is, is phenomenal. Mm. But you might remember that Michael Hussey had a record. You know, he was averaging 70 at one stage yeah. early in his in his career. Yeah. Yeah, you know, so Michael Hussey is a fair player as well, mm. and Michael was one of those players that came in a bit later. But that was opportunity more than anything mm. else. Mm. Michael was identified as a 21, 22 year twenty-two-year-old. His his chance to be selected early was probably missed when Caddick got picked. Mm. You know, it would have been you know, they would have been pretty close at that stage, but Caddick was the one that was in form at that moment, and not Hussey. Mm. Hussey could easily have played much earlier, mm. um, as could Bilcress. But yeah, I mean, you can argue. I, I mean, I, I thought Ricky Ponting was a super player. Mm. Um, you know, Alan Border, Steve Smith, um, you know, Hussey at his at his peak. You can't imagine that Bradman could have batted it any better than those guys.
1: Mm.
3: But he was twice as good for twice as. Just, just
0: doesn't make any phenomenal. sense.
3: Phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. No, it so. doesn't make sense. So we're forgetting him. Sounds like a good play. <laughs> just a final yeah. one from me,
2: Greg. Uh, just just a note on young people and a a comment you made in a a brilliant feature piece from Adam Burnett, uh, cricket.com.au. I encourage everyone to read that from 2018. It says, um, you know, Greg wonders if in the maelstrom of full-time cricket and the commitments and pressures and privileges it entails that perspective has been lost. And you went on to say uh, regarding young people playing cricket, especially at the top level, they're all brands. Um, Their managers want them on social media to do this and that. Sometimes I hear conversations that worry me. Uh, What is it specifically about that that
3: worries you? I just, I think we were lucky that we played in an era when it wasn't professional cricket. We had to have a career outside of cricket because I think the, the lessons I learned outside of cricket really informed my cricket a lot and vice versa. I think, you know, cricket informed a lot of other things that, I, that I've done in, in my life. You know, um, I think it's a very narrow path to, to send people on. And a very dangerous path. I mean, we didn't have mental illness problems. Well, I mean, then again, few leg spinners I know. But um, <laughs> yeah,
1: you know,
3: the spin bowling's always been been fraught, and, and spinners have always been a little bit different. But the fact was that you know cricket wasn't our only focus. You know, I mean, our main focus was trying to earn enough money somewhere to be allowed to keep playing cricket mm. for as long as long as possible. And, you know, we shared rooms and we did things like that. So you were never left on your own for long periods. And at nighttime, we went out together. But I, I see these guys that have got, you know, they've got entourages. Mm. And at the end of the day's play, they go off with their entourage and you know, they don't see their teammates between, you know, playing out, you know, after playing out. Uh, and I, I'm seeing it with young cricketers who've got managers who, you know, the managers are there for a reason. And the reason, in a lot of cases, might be for their benefit. Mm-hmm. So it's in the, in the manager's benefit, in interest for them to go and play in some competition because there's some money in it. When they might have been might be better off to have a you know a period of time off, a period of time for reflection, of, you know where their trigger's at. Yeah, you know, Bradman said to me. You know, I, I spoke to him not long before he died, and you know I asked him the question: Why did you resist so hard? you know, better conditions for players. And bear in mind, we were never looking for full-time cricket. I'd tried that in county cricket and I didn't like it and I didn't think it was in my best interest to be playing cricket year-round full-time. But Bradman said, you know, the exact quote was, Greg, sport loses something when it becomes a business. And I think, you know, we knew the reason we were playing cricket was for the love of it. And we kept playing playing the game as long as we could and as long as we, we loved the game. I think there are some blokes... I've met some guys that are playing cricket because they can. I'm not convinced mm. that they love it to the degree that we loved it. Mm. And that's dangerous. Mm. And the pressures on young cricketers today are much greater than they were on us. It's much harder for a young batsman to become a great batsman today than it was for us. You know... The demands of three, three formats, um, all of the, the pressures of full-time cricket doesn't suit everybody. And we can all think of one or two players who had all of the physical talent that they needed to play well at the highest level, but they couldn't cop the lifestyle. And it's tough. And I think the dangers for young sportsmen in the modern era are far greater than ever before, and we're seeing that with the, the high incidence of mental illness that's creeping into sport worldwide. And that's a worry, and the, the administrative bodies of these sports have a huge responsibility to the, uh, these young athletes to make sure that we look after them in every sense of the word. And I think it's difficult to do. It's a huge challenge, mm. It's probably the greatest challenge in sport today.
2: Greg, uh, I I think I can speak on behalf of all listeners who've tuned in for this uh, epic interview. In fact, I don't think we've done one as long or as epic as this, who will have been vacuuming or mowing their lawns with headphones on or, um, you know, purchasing their avocados at the market uh, for whom they've been given much to think about uh, from this conversation. Uh, It's been riveting from our perspective. We really appreciate it. And just off the top of my head, there's there's a couple of former prime ministers coming out now saying things that perhaps they didn't. And say as strongly um you know as as they perhaps could have uh when they were younger and there's something about that in the, in the way you're speaking here as well and I say that out of respect it's really uh lovely to hear such uh fierce views on cricket uh from someone who obviously knows so much and, and we're really appreciative that uh you have given us so much time to put that forward and I know a lot of people who will be listening uh will, will be appreciating it as well so on behalf of them and us thank you so much for this chat
3: no my pleasure i As you can tell, I do enjoy talking about cricket. (laughs)
0: This 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 has been a baseball chat.
3: (laughs) Well, we can go down that path if you like. (laughs) We've probably got another 15 or 20 minutes. (laughs) Uh, What do you need to know? uh,
2: (laughs) Did me really chuck it? No, um, no we'll, we'll, we'll leave that there. Uh, thanks, thanks so much, Greg. And, and look, just fine off the top of my head as well, you do such great work with the Greg Chapel Foundation uh, and the sleep out you guys do. And uh, I'll just say this on on air, but uh, any help that we can provide for that, uh, please sing out.
3: That's a silly thing to say. I'll be on the phone very soon.
2: <laughs> okay, ladies and gentlemen, that was Greg Chapel. That's the first time... We've done something like that, he goes, and as we said at the top of the show, didn't think it would go that long, but, you know, he spoke passionately. We've got some areas there. Yeah, some super areas. And um, there were some interesting points raised. He's very fervent about his youth policy, and I think he's pretty fervent about redressing the idea that, uh, you know, he is the sole Uh, Darth Vader, you know, of grade cricket and older people in cricket. I think he tried to make a more nuanced point just saying, like, you should only really be there if you've got ambition and you're succeeding. I mean, my takeaway from it, from what Greg was saying, was Uh, that, you know, as with most things, it's boring, but it is about a balance. There is a great place for senior people inside and for older people Mm -hmm. uh, in the game. Um, I think he probably sits
0: a little bit more on the extreme around preferring youth unless justified otherwise. I think that – I think my – so playing great cricket at the time when this, like mm. particularly the the um, sort of collapsing, collapsing, the, mm. the the changing of the second eleven system, mm. where you know that be- that became an under 23s competition, he made a really great point. It was like we didn't need a second state competition where it was all black blokes who were never going to play for Australia because that is the goal and that was his job as well to make the Australian cricket team as good as possible. Now at the time of that change, the perception was well, I'm twenty two, I'm twenty three, I'm twenty four, and twenty five, and I'm not being picked in. As, you know, in shield cricket, um, you know, I'm oh, sorry, I'm not going to make it into shield cricket. What's the point of still playing plan. now that probably coincided in hindsight at a time where like, where people were just getting busier and busier and like capitalism was taking over, mm-hmm. you know? Cause like I always say now looking back on it, and it's the same with village cricket in the UK. When village cricket was thriving in the UK, when games were played on Sundays, fucking cinemas weren't open. So mm-hmm. like that was a thing that you did that brought communities together, but got people out of the house essentially, which is a great mantra to live your life. Just get out of the house. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a thing that you did. And now people are working fucking 100-hour weeks or whatever and they are more about, well, there's other things to do. Maybe I want to watch Netflix instead of fucking, you know, play mm-hmm. great cricket. Maybe I want to spend more time with my family because I'm working so much during the week, so this thing. Greg made a great point as well, changing changing the first grade start times from making an all-day affair, whereas back when he was playing, it was like mm-hmm. a 1 o'clock start. That's awesome. That's that. also an interesting thing, you know. So, you know, hearing him speak, one thing that I took away from it was that he, he deeply cares about it. Absolutely. And he's um he deeply cares about cricket and cricket in Australia as well. That's a really fascinating thing. And he spoke in a very erudite and polite manner as well, and someone who has a very staunch defence of his policies, and rightfully so, you expect no difference. They are his thoughts and his policies. So I thought um But he also mentioned they were everyone else's policies too. They all signed off on it, but he's yeah. he said he's, he's just the have to, guy. He's a,
2: well, yeah, he's he's been carrying the can for it. Mm. And I get the impression. He's not overly happy with that and the people who did – he's happy to defend that view Mm. but those who signed off on it and backed it don't seem to be anywhere near him when it comes to Mm. backing him up Mm. on that kind of view and I think my sense is because he's going around the media talking about this at the moment as Mm. he's entitled to do, I think what he's done is he's seeing Bukowski, and Cameron Green and a new influx of youth in Australian cricket and he's thinking – well, this is my time, politically speaking, to let people know that, yes, youth can be good, mm. you know? And uh, mm. he, I noticed his brother come out and uh, backed that view as well. Mm. Uh, and look, good on him. It's, he's, he's allowed to share that view at the moment, mm. I think, and uh, I think he's entitled to it as well.
0: He made a great point that, like, there was a time when, when, when this policy took over, that, I think it was six. There were mm. six players under the age of 25 in the whole of the Shield cricket. I mean, that is, that's fucking, that is bad that's really bad that and the confusing part was was that like when that policy was going on that was the time in australian cricket where it was like the end of ponting beginning of clark where like we were shit for like mm. 3 4 years well we weren't number 1 anymore we weren't what we were but used but australia to. like you know australia should be one or two always mm. it should never be lower than that mm. really in, in the what cricket means to this country and its place in the culture and the society Compare that to everywhere else around the world, including England. Like cricket's a fucking what, ninth biggest mm. sport. South Africa, look at the fucking status of South Africa at the moment. Mm. West Indies have fallen away so far. Pakistan haven't played a home test in years. Sri Lanka and never we should been be six good. after
2: India's first five teams.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Australia should be never be lower than mm. second. You know, just the place that this game holds in people's fucking spheres mm. should never be lower than that. So, you know, and, and when we drip, dropped outside of that, you know, it, it felt like he was making these changes at that time and it was like, well, it's his fault. It goes to your point. He wasn't the only one making these decisions. And actually, in hindsight, hearing him speak and thinking about it further... Maybe Australia's resurrection and having guys like Pekovsky ingrained on the precipice of the side, maybe that is actually more about his, um, his policies that he implemented almost 10 years ago now. Maybe. I don't know. I'm still thinking about it. But I don't know. It was interesting to talk to him anyway. I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, let us know what you said. Uh, let us know what you think, as Pez said. Uh, we're doing the Hashtag Ask Did You See Fridays on Patreon tomorrow if you want to join that. Patreon.com forward slash great Cricketer.
2: Bit of a different tone. To
0: this. Bit of a different tone to this. Mm. But, you know, balance. Mm. We're all just fucking celebrating cricket. We're all just having a laugh about cricket and uh, celebrating that we're really shit at it. (laughs) Uh, Patreon guys, see you tomorrow. rest of you guys, see you guys next week on Tuesday.